Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. We are in Revelation Revealed. This is part 16. This is chapter 10, part 2, and we'll get to chapter 11 tonight. I want to say a prayer before we go any further. Father, thank you so much for the blessing of the Lord that's in this house, the richness of your presence. I pray, God, that you would bless this time together. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. So, a little review and introduction. We saw where a mighty angel of God came to earth last time in Revelation 10 and stood on the land and on the sea, raised his hand and swore that there would be no delay. Now, the King James is time would be no more, but it means no more delay because between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, there had been a delay. But that delay was over. The angel went on to say that when the seventh trumpet sounded, the mystery that God had declared through his servants, the prophets, would be finished or concluded, wrapped up. So what's about to take place here in Revelation 10 is something that's already been declared, and this blows my mind, in the pages of our Bible. I mean, he's about to wrap up something that he had already stated through his servants, the prophets, in the Word. It's about to finish up. In the words in your Bible, that they're about to come to pass in Revelation 10 at that time that we've been looking at. Now, that phrase, the mystery of God, or something similar to that, is used to describe different aspects of God's plan throughout the Bible. We see where the mystery of the kingdom is talked about by Jesus in the parables, Matthew 13. The ultimate conversion of, of the Jewish people is, is called a mystery, Romans eleven twenty five. God's purpose for the church is called a mystery, Ephesians 3, 3 through 11. The bringing in of the fullness of the Gentiles is called a mystery, again, Romans eleven twenty five. Jesus in the heart of the believer is called the mystery of God, Colossians 1, 27, 2 and 3. The gospel itself is called the mystery of Christ, Colossians 4, 3. There's the mystery of iniquity. We've seen this in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 7. All of these are connected to what's about to take place in Revelation 10. It is the wrapping up of God's master plan. The restitution of all things, the consummation of all things. That is to say, the conclusion of all things prescribed by the covenant. All things that God has sworn to perform, it's all coming together in Revelation 10. Peter talked about this in Acts 3.21. Paul did so in 1 Corinthians 15.24. This is God sealing the deal on his plan of redemption. A mystery to be sure, but the terms have been spelled out in the words of your Bible, of my Bible. And in Revelation 10, we see it's being executed. Are you with me? Isn't that exciting? Now, let's look at verses 8 through 11 in Revelation 10. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. 
So I went to the angel and said, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter. But it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. That's weird, isn't it? And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So, it seems as if we looked at this last time, this little book outlines the judgments that are coming to be unleashed on the earth. At this time, a judgment which the angel, it it looks like from the, the text here, is authorized to discharge as part of his mission. John Wolford says the contents of this little book seem to represent the written authority given to the angel to fulfill his mission. Now John was commanded to take the little book from the angel and to eat it. I just find that a weird image, right? Eat the little book. I mean, is it edible, you know? Rip the pages out, eat the book. But, but we've seen this throughout the Bible where the words referred to as food, you know, bread, milk, meat. In Ezekiel 3.1, Ezekiel was told, eat the word, eat this scroll. Jeremiah 15.16, Jeremiah ate the word. Psalm 119.103 and other Psalms, David ate the word. G. Campbell Morgan points something out. He says, eating the book is familiar territory to the student of the Bible and suggests the feeding of the soul on the Word of God. Let's take a minute here and just kind of look at this. I know John's eating the book up there. Let's talk about eating the book down here. John was told to eat the book, to ingest it, to, as a result, assimilate the book into himself. That's how food works, right? It becomes part of who you are. You are what you eat. So, here he was told to eat the book. I I think we should fill up on the word. I told you one time uh, in prayer years ago, the Lord spoke to me and told me to go tell somebody something, and I didn't do it. And then the Lord came to me and said, you need to fill up on my word. Because a half-tank Christian won't do what a full-tank Christian is called to do. You're called to be at a full tank. Fill up on my word. I think that we can be filled with the word, and we are. We know that. At times, we're more full than others. We start draining out. That's why daily we should spend some time in that word, filling up on that word, hiding that word in our heart that we don't sin against God. I mean, the psalmist said it. Where can a young man find the strength to get free, to, to cleanse himself from sin? By taking heed to the word. Hiding the word in your heart that you don't sin against God. So filling up on the word brings a strength. Faith comes by hearing the word. People say, my faith is low. Fill up on the word. Get more word. Eat the book. How do I do that? Spend time with it. Don't try to speed read and get through it and get a certificate. Spend time with the word. Pray about the word. Ingest it. Memorize it. Ask God to help you see the truth of it. The Holy Spirit is given one of the reasons to lead us and guide us into all truth. So fill up on the Word. Spend time in the Word. 
Find out what the Word says about you, your circumstances, your situation, and your God. The Word will let you know that your God is bigger than anything you're facing. We're going to see that a little bit later in this study tonight. I love this. John was invited to eat the book, even commanded to eat it, but it was not crammed down his throat. He had to take it. He had to eat it. God never forces his revelation on anybody. We have to be willing to take what he offers and consume it. It's also interesting to me that John could only proclaim the word that he had ingested. Marcus Johnson says, The reception of the word of God into the innermost being is a necessary prerequisite to proclaim it with confidence. So he's supposed to prophesy to all these people, but it would only take place after he had taken the word into himself. You know, you can tell when a preacher is just speaking from the top of his heart or maybe from his head only or maybe just repeating something that he saw or heard. You can then tell the difference when that word has dropped into his heart and he's speaking from a heart of revelation, right? I've opened myself up to this. It's become a part of me, and I'm going to share it with you. That's what we need in in ministry and in preaching and teaching. We need people that have hidden the word in their heart. And John went on to say the little book was sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. It gave him a stomach ache. And so that angel reached down into his robe and said, It's okay, John, I got you covered. I've reached into the future. I got a little something, something for that. Sweet, sweet. I, I've wrestled with myself for about three minutes. Like, should I do this or should I not? I yielded. <laughs> it was sweet to the taste. You know, David said that. He said, your word was like honey. And, and, and this word was sweet as well. But... As it settled, it gave, it gave him this, this sour stomach, a stomachache. Matthew Poole says the revelation to John was troublesome. It was painful. It didn't sit well with him. Henry Barclay Sweat says every revelation of God's purposes has an element of bittersweet, mercy, and judgment. The mercy sweet. The judgment cramps our style. It can be disturbing, as we've already seen in the book of Revelation. It, it, it's, there's a bitterness to it. And then John was commanded to prophesy to all men. This prophecy would speak to the fate of the entire world, not just one nation, empire, or emperor. This is not all about the Roman Empire. It's about the whole world. So, Let's get into chapter 11, start with verses 1 and 2. Are you with me? So, so we're going somewhere. you got to go where the text leads you, and we're going somewhere. Verses 1 and 2, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So let's talk about this temple. You know, there was the tabernacle back in Moses' day. That portable, you know, I call it the double wide 
situation, right? They dragged it all around out in the wilderness. And then there was the first temple funded by David, built by Solomon. It's called Solomon's Temple, and it was something to behold. Majestic, majestic, huge, ornate, incredible detail, fabulous structure, one of the wonders of the world. It was majestic, but through the years it was damaged and fighting skirmishes, wars. It stood for 364 years and was finally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar on the 9th of Av in 586 BCE. The Jewish people memorialized that loss of the temple on a solemn day known as Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av. Then there was Zerubbabel in 517 BCE. After a lot of delay, the second temple was completed. It's known as Zerubbabel's temple. And it was so much less extravagant than Solomon's temple. Now, the young folks were excited because they did get a temple, but the ones that had remembered Solomon's temple wept. We see this in the book of Ezra because the temple was so much less. This Zerubbabel temple was so much less than the great temple of Solomon. Later, this temple was greatly expanded and enhanced. Herod was trying to kiss up to the Jews and, 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 and really make something that rivals Solomon's temple. Sometimes they call this temple Herod's temple, but it's still Zerubbabel's temple. To the Jewish mindset, it's always been the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. And, and it was the temple that Jesus ministered in. And remember, the Lord came suddenly to his temple, those prophecies. And the glory of the latter house would be greater than the former house. Well, Solomon's temple was not greater than, was greater than Zerubbabel's temple. How would Zerubbabel be considered prophetically to be greater? Because Jesus came to the house. And so it was a greater house. But... In 70 A.D., it was destroyed. Now, apparently, there's always been a heavenly temple. You see this in Hebrews 8 and other places. Jesus ascended, offered his own blood for the atonement. But there's also this third temple. We've talked about it during this study that will be built. There will be this temple during the tribulation, and it seems to be that this is the temple that we see here in Revelation 11. John's told to measure it. Now, in Ezekiel 40 through 43, the chapters, Ezekiel was told to measure a temple as well. I believe the temple in Ezekiel is the temple, without parsing, you know, splitting hairs or whatever, that will be in the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And this temple in Revelation 11 seems to be existing before that millennial temple from Ezekiel. There are a few other biblical examples of measuring temples, cities, things like that. Zechariah chapter 2, a man measured Jerusalem, showing that God was bringing judgment on the city. In Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is measured, not because there's judgment coming, but to show that God's in charge. Guzik states sometimes in the Old Testament, the idea of measuring communicates ownership. Everybody say ownership. Protection, everybody say protection. And preservation, say preservation. When Habakkuk prophesied, he stood and measured the earth. The idea was that the, the Lord owned the whole earth. 
it's the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he could do with it what he wanted to. When the temple was being measured, it showed that God knows its every dimension and he is in charge. And he can measure to judge. We do know that judgment begins where? At the house of the Lord. Revelation eleven seventeen, which we'll see in just a little bit, there's this reference to the title of Almighty for God. We've seen this in Revelation before, up in Revelation 1, 8. The Lord God Almighty, the Almighty. The Greek word, I just want to point this out, for Almighty here is Pantocrator. And it describes the one who has his hand, listen to this, the one who has his hand on everything. Think about that. He has his hand on everything. Everything. Nine out of ten times this word is used in the New Testament is in the book of Revelation. This temple that is being measured here is going to be the scene of great horror. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. We'll see it in a moment. But the point is this. It will also be the temple standing when Jesus returns to the earth. And the bottom line is this. God is in charge working through fallen man, walking through, working through the devil, and, 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 and working out his purposes. The good actions, the bad actions of both man and the devil, and, and the Lord is in charge. This is the third temple, I believe. The one that has to be on the earth for the fulfillment of what Daniel, Jesus, and Paul talked about, the abomination of desolation. That's the great horror that's coming. The prophet Daniel said that Antichrist will break his covenant with the Jewish people, bringing sacrifice and offerings to an end. We've talked about that. The Antichrist will defile this temple. Jesus said to look for an abomination standing in the holy place, which would be the pivotal sign that the season of God's wrath was upon the earth. And then Paul talked about the Antichrist sitting in the temple claiming to be God. So there will be this third temple and it's the one we're looking at right now. He was told to measure it. And he was said to he was told to measure it, but uh, the outer court didn't need to be measured because it was given to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles will be in that outer court. Mentioned this before, perhaps it's because of the situating of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. That could be, you know, the Antichrist coming in and, and setting up an arrangement, somebody setting up an arrangement between the Jewish nation and the Muslims and saying, listen, we're going to build our temple, but let's, you give, we'll give. We'll let your mosque stay in the outer court while we have our holy place, you know, over here. And we can coexist. You ever seen coexist bumper stickers? Right? We can coexist. This is how it can happen right here. And so uh, it, it seems to me, it's my opinion, that that's, I lean that direction for sure. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, they destroyed the city so completely that the foundations of the old temple could not be easily found. 
In other words, they destroyed that temple, dismantled it stone from stone, just like Jesus said they would. They, they burned it. The gold melted. It melted into the, the, the stones. They had to take the stone, every stone apart and try to wedge out the gold. So they dismantled it. But that's not the end of the story. They went back in there later and were instructed to plow the city under. The Romans plowed the city of Jerusalem under. They destroyed it, plowed it under to the point that they couldn't even find the foundation of where the temple was. And to this day, it is in question as to where it is. Is the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the court of the Gentiles, or, or is the temple supposed to be in other places? The writings of Josephus and some other writers say that the Jews complained to Herod because they said, you can look out of your court and you can see where the sacrifices are taking place, and we don't like that. Well, if you get the elevations in play with that, it looks like maybe the, the temple could be maybe a little bit of a lower elevation, a little bit differently situated. And there's really three main schools of thought as to where the temple should be, and I'm not an expert on any of that, but perhaps that is why the angel told John, leave the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it. It's been given to the Gentiles. And indeed, they will tread the holy city underfoot. The holy city, what, what is the holy city? It's, it's Rome, right? Is that the Vatican? What is that? No, it's Jerusalem, right, Cynthia? It's Jerusalem. The holy city of Jerusalem will be tread underfoot for a period. Listen to this. He says, of 42 months... That's 1,260 days. That's three and one-half years. Daniel referred to this as time, times, and the dividing of time. This trampling of Jerusalem by Gentiles probably takes place in the last half of this seven-year period of time. We've looked at that. When the Antichrist pours out fury on the people of Israel. We'll see this some more in Revelation 12. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? Prophecy in life point. And they will tread the holy city underfoot. A.T. Robertson said this, this idea of treading underfoot means to trample with contempt. And boy, that just seems to fit the way people look at Judaism, anti-Semitism. You know what I mean? Verse 3. And I will give power, listen to this, to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, this is idiomatic. These are, these are terms that mean something from other places in the Bible. The cool thing is, I told you from the very beginning, there's 400 and something verses in the, the book of Revelation. There's 800 allusions to the Old Testament. So, like, the reason we struggle with understanding the book of Revelation is because we have a, you know, a limited understanding from the Old Testament. There's so much alluded to in the Old Testament. Like here, the, these two are olive trees and lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Two witnesses. Here he introduces two interesting characters, infamous characters, two witnesses. The character of their ministry is prophetic. They will prophesy, it says. They preach, and they seem to be preaching a message of repentance. How do we know this? They're clothed in sackcloth. That's, that's demonstrating repentance. 
the two witnesses also have an effective ministry because it's empowered. Walford says such power, in fact, that they are able to witness for 1,260 days in spite of the entire world being antagonistic towards them. The world wants to kill them and eventually will. But they're going to minister for three and a half, uh, 1,260 days. They're going to minister for that amount of time. And the world can't do anything about it because the power of God is coursing through them. It says here, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. The witnesses have a unique, continual empowering from the Holy Spirit. As shown here with this olive trees and lamps picture. This is from the book of Zechariah. Where we see olive trees and and lamps. The passage from Zechariah had its first application to two men in Zechariah's day. Joshua and Zerubbabel. And just as... These two witnesses were raised up to be lampstands or witnesses for God and were empowered by olive oil representing the power of the Holy Spirit. So these two witnesses of Revelation 11 will likewise execute their prophetic office. Walford says that. I love that. Zechariah 4, 6. You remember that? This is from that passage. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my spirit says the Lord. That, that's when the, the angel of the Lord is, is there with Joshua and Zerubbabel. And the question comes to Zerubbabel, what is this mountain before you, Zerubbabel? It's nothing. The idea is, I will empower you. That mountain is nothing. It will move. You're doing the work of the Lord. It's an impossible task to rebuild this temple. But you're going to do it. Not by might, not by power. The whole world seems to be against you, but it's going to happen. That mountain will move. And that's the kind of power that's flowing with these two witnesses. And, and, and in, in Zechariah, it says, and when it's finished, Joshua and Zerubbabel are not going to say, look what we did. They said, you're going to cap, put the capstone on the temple, and you're going to yell out, grace. Grace. It was the grace of God that did it. Let me just say this. If God's called you to do something, if God's put something in your heart, if God's given you a dream, if you'll just face the right direction, even if you move at a snail's pace, if you'll just move in the right direction, God will empower you to fulfill that mission and that dream. And when it's done, you'll never say, look what I did. You'll say, grace, grace, look what God has done. Amen? Come on, give him some praise. This picture from Zechariah, these oil lamps are filled directly from olive trees. You know, they ran on olive oil. And and so here you have the trees directly connected to the lamps, this continual abundant supply of oil to help them be witnesses. That's another thing, too, I love. And you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. As long as we stay connected to the source, the power of our witness is unstoppable. You're like, I'm not a good witness. I'm not a, if, if you'll just try to, what, what is witnessing? Oh, my Lord, I feel like rambling right now. But I've told you, you know, my father likes, wants to be a Bible study teacher, but he's really anointed to be a bringer. 
He just brings more people to church than anybody, and he feels guilty. Y'all don't tell him I said this. You may listen to the podcast. I love you, Dad. But, you know, I've told him this. My, my dad, you know, he feels guilty. Like, I, I need to teach a Bible study. He's almost 75 years old. I need to teach a Bible study. I, have, are you teaching one? Not yet. I'm working on it. He's almost 75. But he brings hundreds of people to church. Right, Brenda? He, like, brings hundreds of people to church. Brings all these people to church. And God does great things through their lives. That other people teach Bible studies. Just, just relax, Dad. Be a bringer. You don't have to teach them. Bring them. Somebody else will teach them, you know? As long as he stays connected to his gifting and his calling and he's submitted to the Lord, God just gives him favor. What is a witness? What is a witness? I mean, is that telling people uh, all the Bible truth and knowledge that you know? Or is it just trying to influence somebody to, to turn to Jesus, trust in Jesus? You believe in Jesus, you think they should believe in Jesus. To me, that's what a witness really is. It's like, I don't have all the answers, but I do know one that has all the answers. His name is Jesus. I'm learning more about him. I would love to tell you all I know. Won't you come to church with me? Won't you let me pray with you? It's just being an influence. Staying connected to the power source, getting in our flow, the power of God can flow. I'm amazed. There are some people under the sound of my voice right now. You are a powerful witness. And you look at your circumstances and you say, you know what? I don't think I'm being effective in my ministry, my witness. And the reason you say that is because you're looking at your immediate circumstances. I'm having a financial difficulty. I'm having trouble in my marriage. I'm having trouble on my job. And so you get fixated on the the issues of the day and let the enemy try to shut your mouth. I want to encourage you. Keep being that influence on somebody because those things are not they're, they're, they're temporary anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying your marriage ain't important, your money ain't important, and your job ain't important. But what I'm saying is you can't be silenced. With, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Don't let the trouble stop you from being the influence and the witness. You keep trusting in the Lord. You don't have to be perfect. I'm wanting to move on, but i got to say one more thing about that. A lot of times we think, when I do become perfect, then I will be that witness God's called me to be. You'll never be that witness. You say, I want to I be in ministry. I want to preach. But I'm going to wait till I get perfect. Wow, you know, like, I'll see you on the other side, you know. And I will not see you at preacher conferences. Because you're waiting to be perfect. Good luck with that. No, you got to start moving in the direction, and the Lord will empower and equip you. I love it. Now, let's look at verses 5 and 6. If anyone wants to harm them, wouldn't this be great, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is part of the bitterness that was in his stomach, but I'm just saying, if anyone wants to harm them, fire! Proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Wow. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. However they come against them, they're going to die that way. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues. As often as they desire. 
So these two witnesses, okay, you're talking about a witness protection program. This is God's witness protection program. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so here they are, and people are like, I hate them. They're on CNN. You know, people are like, I wish somebody had shut those two up. And they're like, I'm going to get them. Fire comes out of their mouth, you know, like, okay, we're not going to say that anymore. You're like, look what happened to, you know, this famous reporter. He's just a greasy spot in Jerusalem right now. So they just shut up, you know. Two witnesses, man, witness protection program. It's kind of like Elisha or Elijah in 2 Kings 1. They have power to shut heaven. It's kind of like Moses, power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. So the two witnesses have this this power to, to bring drought, plague, like Elijah and Moses. It says they, these, them. The ancient Greek wording here, the nouns used to speak of them are all in the masculine gender. These, these two witnesses are definitely men. Look at verses 7 through 10. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, now we've seen this, will make war on them, war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will be in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So we definitely know this is Jerusalem. But spiritually it's referred to as Sodom and Egypt. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, over their death. Make merry and send gifts to one another. Think about that. Barnhouse said that he saw a Christmas card one time with this verse on it. Revelation 11.10. Make merry, send gifts to one another. He's like, okay, the people at Hallmark, Hallmark, you know, like they got it out of context, right? It's saying at the death of the two witnesses, they'll make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Wow. So we saw in Revelation 9-11, this is probably Satan himself coming against them out of the bottomless pit. But notice, their ministry is not cut short. They have fully accomplished their task. They're testifying to the moment, to the day, the hour, the second. In other words, they were unstoppable while on mission. And personally, I believe that's the way we are. If we're on mission, if God's put a dream, a call on our hearts, until that dream is finished, we're unstoppable. I get on airplanes, and you know, you know, airplanes are weird. I remember when I was younger flying, and I'd get on an airplane, I'd be like, 
Oh, Lord Jesus, I think the angels could protect you over me. You know, lest to bear my foot up against the stone. You know, bear me up on angels' wings. And thank you, Jesus, for the health of my pilot and the uh, co-pilot. And, you know, and Jesus, the engines are all fine. And I'd pray, man, I'd pray over that plane. I'm serious. Like, that's how I rolled. I'd be praying over the plane, you know. And, and we would take off. And I, every little, you know, all when the landing gear comes up. So you're like, ooh, you're up in there. You're like, you know, and you're like, did the bottom just fall out? You know, did you're just freaking out over every noise and the and the turbulence and all that. And I'd be like, I thank you, Lord, the angels give them charge over me, lest I dash my foot against a stone. In Jesus' name, you'll bear me up on you know angels' wings and hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, give you praise, Lord. I'd be like, so I was always trying to you know pray the plane afloat. And I'm not saying that I don't still pray occasionally on an airplane, but at the same time, I've said, I thank you, Lord, you've, you've called me, and, and you're not done. Until you're done with me, I'm not leaving this earth. I'm going to accomplish the mission you've called me to do. It's just kind of just confidence. They, they accomplished their mission, and it wasn't over. It wasn't over. And so they're, they're lying dead in, 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 the, in the streets, and... and Spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, this is Jerusalem, the holy city. We, we just saw that terminology. The, the city that's set apart for the purposes of God. That's what holy means. For the purposes of the covenant, the place where he put his name, Jerusalem. The, I mean, th- th- this goes way back in the Bible. This is in the, the eons of eternity. This is where our Lord was crucified. This holy city, God had set aside and purposed, and yet spiritually... It's seen as Sodom, speaks of immorality, as Egypt speaks of oppression, slavery. The great city, this is a term often applied to Babylon, the headquarters of Antichrist. And we know the Antichrist is setting up shop there. During the first three and a half years of Jerusalem's uh, being in league with Antichrist, you could see where these titles would apply. A city in love with Antichrist is... Entering into a covenant with them certainly be, could be called Sodom, Egypt, or Babylon. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another. This is crazy. They're excited. Think about it. I, I, in the olden days, I would say, think about television. In the modern day, I would say, think about social media. Think about it. So you have these guys, the whole world hates them. They've been viral on the internet, and then they're killed by the devil. There's nothing more humiliating than to just leave their bodies in the streets. And the social media goes crazy. Look at them. Hate them. Put their bodies on display. Kind of like when Saul was killed by the Philistines, and they hung his body on a wall in a pagan temple. They hung it up there, and brave men went and, and got him. And to put the body on display, a trophy of hell here, two trophies of hell. The world celebrates, makes merry, sends gifts. Two prophets, two witnesses who called a, a world to repentance. They were a torment to many. People couldn't stand the truth. They loved the lie. But look at verses 11 through 14. Now, after the three and a half days, the, the breath of life from God entered them. The ruah, the, the breath of God. And they stood on their feet, 
Think about it. Social media. Laid out in the street for all to see. Man. Remember when the, the angels would, would, would come in for a landing. You know, the, I saw the, the rustling of the, the trees is, is in the Old Testament referred to that as the angels came in. Here you have the breath of God coming, entering into that, that arena and into their bodies. Suddenly, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the two witnesses. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. And there's some meaning there. We'll have to get into it next time. But they stood on their feet and great fear, that's common sense to me, fell on everybody who saw them. The whole world is watching the two witnesses stand to their horror and astonishment. And the voice says, come up here. In other words, this world is not worthy of you. It reminds me of Hebrews, you know, as some were sawn asunder and all these things happened. And it said, of whom the world was not worthy. These two, the world was not worthy. They ascend to heaven in, in a cloud. There's this great earthquake. Earthquake seen as judgment. Uh, it moves people to give glory to God. But it, it remains to be seen if this will turn into true repentance, salvation, whatever. Many interpreters, and we'll end on this, I'll have to tease you with it. Many interpreters see the two witnesses as symbolic of the entire church in the tribulation period or as symbols of the law and prophets, but there's so many specific details given to their ministry, I don't see how it can be a symbolic interpretation that works in the context here. The most plain and straightforward interpretation sees them as two real men, not symbolic representations. And who are they? If the two witnesses are identified with any two individuals from the past, the leading candidates, as you can imagine, would be, who do you think? Elijah, Moses, and there's another one, Enoch. And so... Maybe these are merely two believers ministering in the spirit and power of these men. You know, John the Baptist was said to have gone forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Enoch, you know, is thrown in here because he was carried up to God. You know, Elijah didn't see death and Enoch didn't see death. And so Elijah's ministry is similar here. You've got this idea of, you know, stopping the rains and uh, causing a drought. The rains come at his word. He's... That kind of thing, but uh, he's got a ministry kind of like the two witnesses, carried up into heaven. Uh, Elijah's enemies were destroyed by fire. Remember when James and John said, hey, let's call down fire from heaven on those people over there. You know, like Elijah did. You ever want to do that? I mean, come on now. You're witnessing. Somebody's giving you grief, you know, persecuting you, you know, because... You're going to church on Sunday morning or something, you know. And, uh, so Elijah did that. And he had this 
conference with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, Elijah, something, Moses, again, we've already looked at that, similar situation. Enoch and Elijah are top candidates because they, they didn't die a natural death. Now, and I'm closing with this. Why don't you stand with me? It'll help me to close. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for men to die once. And Enoch and Elijah didn't die a natural death. And so the idea is they have to return to die on the earth because it's appointed every man to die. This is, I, I don't think, a legit reason. If, if, if you'll remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and others, and they turned around and died again, right? So they died twice. That does not nullify the Hebrews passage. It's appointed unto man to die once. Lazarus died twice. And at the same time, as well as others, in that situation, we have the rapture story here where those who are alive and remain will be caught up, and, and they don't die a natural death. They're caught up. So that doesn't nullify Hebrews 9, that it's appointed unto man wants to die. Just because the church that was raptured didn't die doesn't nullify. So in other words, you can't say it has to be Elijah and Enoch. But it could be. It definitely could be. i got to be honest with you. I hope it is Elijah and Enoch or Moses. I just think that would be so cool especially in Jerusalem, especially in that place, which I'm going to see before long. I just, wouldn't that be amazing if it if there's all these, here's, here's the bottom line. He is the Almighty. He can do what He wants to do. If He wants to put Elijah and, and He wants to put Moses or Enoch in that situation. You know what I'd ask about Enoch? I, I, I would love to say, Enoch, tell me about the book you wrote, sir. I hear about this book of Enoch and it's mysterious and everybody questions it. Come on now. Were there really 60-foot giants? Were there really 260-foot giants? Come on, Enoch. I mean, think about Enoch, Elijah, or Moses standing there. You know, I was here years ago. I met with Jesus and talked to him about the crucifixion that he was about to face. And I'm going to tell you something, people. It's okay, Lord. Uh, it's okay, everybody. I'm just trying to set the mood by killing all the lights. God is in control. God is in charge. He'll do it exactly the way he wants to do it. He'll do it exactly when he wants to do it, with who he wants to do it. I mean... He is in charge. The bottom line is now, you're going to bow the knee either later or now. You might as well bow the knee and say, Lord, I surrender. I give my all to you. I want to serve you with everything I have. Can you lift your hands to him right now? Thank you, Jesus. Lord, for the challenge that we see in your word, I want to serve you. I want to live for you. God, we're about to read it. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. The consummation of all things. Lord, it is the restitution of all things. It's when the Son hands the kingdom back over to the Father. Jesus, you said, I, I, the, the Father has given me all things. But then when redemption's plan is finished, the Son turns around and gives the kingdom back to the Father. It is finished. It is done. And we will, be known, we will know as we are known. All mysteries are gone. All tears are wiped away. And forever with our Lord and our Savior worshiping and praising Him. Amen.
Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed by the preaching of God's Word. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, or if you plan to attend one of our services, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.